Well, my name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor here, and I don't look anything like I did last week. Uh, I shaved for the first time in four years. And so if you're... Uh, it, I didn't think that would be that funny. I mean, I, it was literally... It was literally four years ago. And so... Uh, oh, okay. That's what's so funny. All right, well... Um, Whoever did that, if you'd like to come and bring the message, you're more than welcome. We're in Galatians chapter 3, I have a couple of announcements. Man, I have the, I don't know, the best church, worst church, somewhere in between, I don't know. Um, Galatians chapter 3 is where we'll be today, so if you want to open your Bibles, and um, Trey read that for us a moment ago. I have a few announcements I want to um, bring, though. Uh, we're going to India in uh, just a few weeks, uh, four of us, uh, I'll be leading that team it's one of the reasons I shave, but not the only one. Um, we'll be going in a few weeks, and it's a, a pretty rigorous travel schedule, and we get to go and um, sort of equip church planters, equip uh, believers to share their faith, equip uh, believers to understand what it means to be a church and how to start churches. And, uh, man, we're, these trips are always just such a blessing of seeing the gospel go forward in, um, in, in, in difficult places. And so pray for our team as we prepare. Um, praise God for his provision and providing all the finances for us. And uh, we're excited to go and work with our partners in uh, Madhya Pradesh, India. Uh, the New York trip, every Thanksgiving, we take a team of folks to New York City. Um, our association used to do that, uh, and then they kind of gifted that to us. And so if you'd like to go to New York City this Thanksgiving, uh, please see Derek Vance or talk to me about that as well. Uh, our membership course is coming up in just a few weeks, really, just a month or so. Uh, beginning of November, we'll be having a membership course. I've made arrangements with some of you, so if you'd like to be a part of it but, but can't be here those mornings or one morning or two mornings or whatever, please feel free to, uh, to contact me. Um, last thing is something that I always wanted to remind us of. We are, our church is part of a, a, a network called Healthy Bodies, Healthy Spirits, where we um, have a health team in our church, and as you guys have seen that health team, they uh, we're a part of our, our putting on softball. They're a part of uh, different things we did, particularly back at Risen City Center, cooking classes, uh, providing food for things that help us think holistically about how to be healthy people. Um, and so Friday, November 2nd, the statewide network is having their conference. And one of our very own will be speaking. So Jessica Wright will be there sharing about what has happened here in our health team. So I hope that you'll maybe be able to attend. It's Friday, November 2nd. I'll get the exact date and time, or exact time for you later. But uh, I'm always thankful to see you res folks out uh, making a difference. And uh, it's going to be an exciting opportunity. I think that's all I have by way of announcement. So let's jump on into the text. We are jumping into Paul's letter to the Galatians. Really a polemical letter, meaning it was written sort of in um, contest with another theological camp, uh, written to confront false teaching and reground a church he helped plant in the truth of the gospel of grace. This morning, Paul will show tough love to a church he loves dearly. He'll challenge them to consider the reality of their Christian experience by inviting them to consider the role of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Then he'll turn to the scriptures and give them a rock-solid theological foundation for this gospel of grace, which is enough to save their souls and is enough to sanctify them in the truth. Perhaps this morning, Paul's words to the Galatians will be efficacious among us. I don't so much have a thesis, you know, a point I want to prove this morning, so much as the Lord's laid on my heart a series of things I hope happen in these next few 
moment. I hope this morning we, as a fairly young, fairly new church, continue to be grounded in a solid theological foundation of grace. Second, I hope we will experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst, understanding that Almighty God is among us and speaking to us through His Word. And I hope we leave understanding that we're part of a much bigger story than perhaps we had ever realized. I hope we leave tougher. I hope we leave stronger and more equipped for battle with the evil one. So sons and daughters of Abraham, would you join me in God's holy word and consider your life as part of the greatest story ever told. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul has finally, it feels like at long last, through chapters 1 and 2, established his credibility, established his apostolic authority, meaning his authority as an apostle, um, sort of validating that the message he's given the church at Galatia is enough. Because if you've missed the last several weeks, there is a problem in the Galatian church that these false teachers have worked their way among the Galatians within the first year or so of their being a church and have tried to convince the church that the gospel of grace that Paul preached is insufficient for the next level Christianity that they should be aspiring to, right? Always be aware of next level Christianity. Always be aware of next level faith, just as an aside there. But these false teachers have questioned Paul's authority, they've questioned Paul's doctrine, they've questioned Paul's story, and they are trying to convince the Galatians, a largely Gentile church, well, a mixed, uh, a racially mixed church, but with a lot of Gentiles in it. They're trying to convince the Gentiles, that just means non-Jews, that to be a Christian Yes, you have to believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again. Yeah, you got to believe that. Yeah, you're saved by, by grace, whatever. But you're also saved by works. And so if you want to be a Christian, Galatians, what you really need to do is take circumcision. What you really need to do is follow this Jewish dietary law. What you really need to do is begin following these um, holidays and customs of the Jewish people. And Paul is saying if you add something to the gospel of grace, you're nullifying the gospel of grace. And the sinners aren't the Gentiles, but the sinners are the people who are kind of trying to construct their own ethical system instead of submitting to God's gospel of grace as received in Jesus Christ. And so finally in chapter 3, he is addressing the Galatians head on. He feels like he has laid all the necessary groundwork. And here we go, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Just so you know where we're going, verse 1 is sort of its own thing in the address. We're going to dig into that. Then verses 2 through 5 are... Another thing, we'll call it um, consider your experience. And then verses 6 through 9, Paul challenges us to consider Abraham. So if you're a note taker or just want to know where I'm at throughout, those are sort of the three parts of of the sermon this morning. Oh, foolish Galatians, perhaps in exasperation, who has bewitched you? That word bewitched in the Greek is what we call a hexolegomena, which means it's the only place it appears in the entire New Testament. And that word bewitched kind of has this supernatural uh, vibe to it, right? That Paul is presenting the Galatians as sort of in the middle of this 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 supernatural fight, right? There is a spiritual battle going on, and the church at Galatia is caught in the crosshairs of this sinister supernatural plot. 
O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's introducing this idea that it's not just the Galatians who have accepted false doctrine. It's not just their fault, but they're also caught up in a greater plot. They're also caught up in a greater scheme. And that is that there is an evil one who is desiring and actively seeking to lead the Galatians astray. This language vividly reminds us that even as we sit here this morning in Charleston, West Virginia, there is a spiritual battle going on. There is an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Many commentators note that because of the case Paul uses when he says, who has bewitched you, has would correspond to a singular word, that he's talking about Satan, he's talking about the enemy, he's talking about the devil, that who has bewitched you. Is this language too harsh? Is it too harsh for Paul to say, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I think perhaps the language would be too harsh if the stakes weren't so high. Paul needs to employ something more than just mushy sentimentality because lives and eternities hang in the balance. Church, we're reminded that you have to be confronted with your folly before you're able to see the truth. The wise man turns from his folly, but the fool refuses to see it. Perhaps if the Galatians received this letter, the healthy thing to do, the right thing for them to do was hear these words from the apostle, realize the severity of their sway from the truth, and repent and turn to God. And thankfulness to Paul and thankfulness to God that they've been guided back into the way of the Lord. I think that how you take being told that you're wrong is an indicator of your spiritual health. How we handle being told we're wrong, how we handle realizing that I've done wrong, I've believed wrong, I've thought wrong, I need to turn from that. When a loving brother comes to us and that, how we handle that situation is one indicator of our spiritual health. Paul wonders, Galatians, where have you gone wrong? You've heard the gospel message. How can these people trip you up like this? In your mind's eye, Jesus was just impaled at the cross of Calvary. The church isn't questioning that it happened. The church is questioning why it happened. And Paul is making clear that this leaves them on unstable ground. My favorite definition of the gospel is the Christ event. The Christ event is coming, is living, is dying his rising, his ascending, the Christ event, and the God-given facts thereof. They're not questioning the, God, the Christ event, but they're questioning the God-given facts thereof. The apostle then is speaking right to the problem the Galatians are having, and he is unlikely to be voted the most popular Christian in Galatia, but he is too concerned with the spiritual health of the Galatians to care. A related question to ponder, am I more concerned with being liked or am I more concerned with loving my brother? Perhaps that's an evergreen question in Christian community. We transition. Now, Paul's going to begin his argument uh, where he seeks to win the Galatians back to right doctrine, right life, right believing, all these things, by appealing to their Christian experience. In verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so 
by works of the law or by hearing with faith. We'll stop there because six transitions to his next sort of line of argumentation. So in this text, Paul, we see, is asking a series of rapid-fire questions, all of which the Galatians would answer on the basis of their experience. And at the heart of each question, what Paul is getting at is this dichotomy between faith, no, sorry, between flesh and spirit, between faith and works, between flesh and spirit. The question essentially is this, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul is essentially saying, think back, think back, think back, think back to when I was among you and when I was sharing the gospel and when you believed the gospel and then when you became Christians and when you started gathering together weekly and you started taking the supper together, you started eating your meals together, you started loving one another, you started confessing sin to one another, you started living as Christians in the everyday stuff of life. Think back to when that started. What prompted that? Was that prompted by me coming with this legal code and reading it to you, and then you hearing that code and saying, okay, now let's go and do this. No, what happened, Paul says, is I preached the gospel to you, and when I preached the gospel to you, you believed the message I was preaching, and when you believed the message I was preaching, the Holy Spirit came upon you, and the Spirit indwelt you, and the Spirit was the one who brought you together. The Spirit's the one who took people who would on earth just normally not be friends and made them friends. The Spirit is the one who started changing the things you care about, the things you love, who started um, glorifying Christ through you. It was the Spirit of God who did this. It wasn't works of the flesh. Works of the flesh had nothing to do with how you've gotten to this point. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? His answer is assumed, so he asks another rhetorical question. Are you so foolish? Of course the answer is by hearing with faith. Paul's reminding the Galatians that you have received the Spirit by faith. Let's back up just a second and think about the basics of the Christian life, right? What does it mean to receive the Spirit? What does the Spirit of God do in the Christian life? He does many things. He reveals the gospel to us. He opens our eyes to see Christ crucified and resurrected, as it were, right, in the Scripture text. The Spirit of God regenerates us. He, he takes our hearts and our souls that, that only care about ourselves and our own promotion, and he, and he changes it. He, he replaces our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. The Spirit, he joins us to Christ. He indwells us. He seals us. He's the promise that no matter what happens, we are God's and he is ours. He fills us. He gives us the life of Christ. He, he gives us the joy of Christ. He empowers Christian living through us, through his life. And most importantly, he leads us to confess Jesus as Lord and glorify him. Just as Jesus came to glorify the Father, the Spirit came to glorify the Son, and the Spirit dwells in God's people that together we may glorify Jesus so that all the world may know that he is Lord and he is sent by God the Father for the salvation of the world. So the Spirit's done all of this, right? The Spirit has brought us from death to life. The Spirit has joined us with Christ. The Spirit has empowered us to live Christianly. The Spirit has done incredible work. He's filled us. He's sealed us. He's empowered us. But to get to the next level, you need works of the flesh, right? To become a better Christian, to keep going, all of a sudden you've got to stop worrying about this relationship between faith and the Spirit, and you have to start focusing on this relationship between work and flesh, 
Paul says that makes no sense. And I think for many of us, we face that same problem, right? We become a Christian, the Spirit of God fills us, and there's this season where we're excited about that reality, we're, uh, we're wanting to grow, we're wanting to plug in, but then we start like thinking about how can I grow, and instead of it becoming this process of growing in reliance on Christ, instead of this process of deepening our faith, it becomes a, well, what outward signs must I have? How should I look? How should I talk? How should I think? What should I do to grow in my faith? Certainly there are things you do that help you grow, and there are things you do that don't help you grow, but if you're trusting in your works instead of the Spirit, you will surely never grow. Paul asks another question, did you suffer in vain? Did you suffer in vain? We have to consider this question for a moment. It's likely that the Galatian church would have faced some persecution for being followers of Jesus, a young fledgling faith that neither the religious establishment nor the empire was particularly fond of. It's no doubt they suffered at some level for their faith. And now Paul is asking, would it all be for naught? Another possible question that's in play here is these people who are coming and wanting them to be circumcised and wanting them ultimately to be Jewish, they didn't face the same persecution from the government at that particular moment in that particular place. And so he's like, you're going to go and basically be Jewish. Like all of this you could have avoided. Like you didn't have to go through all the persecution that you did by believing this gospel by faith alone. So what are you doing? Did you suffer all of that for no reason? But there is a glimmer of hope when Paul says, if, if indeed it was in vain. Because it's not in vain yet, right? There's still time to turn. There's still time to turn from works of the flesh to works of the spirit. There's still time to turn from law to faith. Does he who supplies the spirit do miracles by faith or works of the law? The answer, of course, is faith. Now, we transition to a case study that will run really throughout the rest of the epistle and is significant to understanding the theology of the whole Bible. Paul is going to appeal to Abraham. So we keep reading verse 5, and there's an ongoing question, right? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, you know, hyphen, line, whatever, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is bringing up Abraham. Who is Abraham? Let's read verses 6 through 9, the final portion of the text. We're moving right along today. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, now then, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Uh, who is Abraham? Right? Abraham is one of the most significant persons in all of the Bible. Father Abraham, if you grew up going to vacation Bible school, had many sons. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I got the beard off, and I'm just losing all ambitions. Who is Abraham? 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 Who is Abraham
is Abraham? And the burning question of this text, who are his sons? Perhaps they would know that if they came to vacation Bible school. That's another question. Abraham's story is told in Genesis chapters 11 through 25. And Genesis 12 uh, begins like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The wandering Aramean, Abram, was called to leave the city of Ur and become the patriarch of God's very own people and enter into a land that he had not seen. And through Abraham, God would create a people to be a blessing to all the nations. Of course, the story of the Old Testament is the story of the people that God created through the lineage of Abraham. And Jews understood this and they were proud of this. But Paul will teach us that that's not where the story ends. Paul will teach us that God had a much bigger picture in mind than one nation in one particular place. According to Jewish sort of interpretive exegetical traditions, Paul's opponents, those false teachers in Galatia, had worked their way among the people of Galatia. And they had probably been saying something like this about Abraham. So, you want to become a Christian? Great. We will show you how to become a Christian, a son of Abraham. You must receive the seal of circumcision, the true sign of God's covenant with his people. And you must keep the commands of the law because this is what our father, our patriarch, our progenitor, this is what Abraham did. And it was against this orthodoxy, right, it was against this way of thinking about Abraham that Paul provides his own interpretation, which isn't his own. It is God's interpretation of the Abrahamic experience. So against this backdrop of those who have come among the church and said, so, you want to be Christians? You want to be in the lineage of Abraham? Well, let me show you how to be in the lineage of Abraham. Because it's in Abraham's lineage that all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so if you want to be like that, right, you have to do what Abraham did. You have to take circumcision. You have to follow the law. You have to do all these things that Abraham would eventually do in his life. Against that, Paul responds perhaps with something like this. So, being a son of Abraham is a big deal, eh? He's not Canadian, but. So, being a son of Abraham is a big deal. How was he declared righteous in the first place? Because he left everything in Ur? Because he took circumcision? Because he kept the law? Because he was eventually willing to sacrifice his own son? No! He was made righteous before he did any of that. God called him before he did any of that. He was made righteous. He was chosen by God simply because he believed God. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness long before he had ever even heard the word circumcision or law. Sure, he became the father of the Jews, but he was chosen by God and justified before God. You guys are going to love this, right? As a Gentile. Ultimately, Paul is saying, your father, the one you look back to, the one you're appealing to, his story doesn't mean what you think it means. 
He was chosen by God. He was justified before God. But it wasn't because of his law keeping. It wasn't because of how bold he was to leave his home and go to a new one. It wasn't because of any of these things. It was because of his faith. Who are the sons of Abraham then? Verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul's reminding the church, he's teaching the church, who are the sons of Abraham in this scenario? It's those of faith. Those of faith, that is his lineage. Paul elaborates on this in Romans 4, and um, I wasn't going to go there, but it's really, really good. So let's look over there for just a second. In Romans 4, if you have your Bibles, in the whole um, chapter, basically what is going on here is, is Paul is teaching the same idea, but he's going into greater detail, and he spends the whole, whole chapter doing it. So perhaps this week or this afternoon, uh, it'd be good to sit down and read Romans 4 with this um, sort of overarching story that we're introducing today sort of fresh on your mind. The beginning of Romans 4, Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say, Paul asks? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you work and you get paid, it's like, oh, thank you so much. No, you earned it. You deserved it. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Just as David, he's, again, he's always grounding this in the scripture. Just as David also speaks to the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. We'll stop there for just a moment. Oh, no, let's not stop there. Go to verse 18 in chapter 4. I, I love how Paul describes the faith of Abraham. And it's one of those things that I've written in like the notes of all of my Bibles. Like, man, I, I want a faith like this, right? In, in chapter 4, verse 18, in hope of Romans, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been to told. He said he believed against hope. Like it was impossible. It wasn't going to happen. It was unlikely in the world's eyes. It wasn't unlikely in the world's eyes. It was impossible in the world's eyes. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Keywords, as he had been told. God defines the limits of possibility and impossibility. So shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. His wife couldn't have a baby, but yet through his lineage, there was supposed to be a blessing to all nations, right? You see the perhaps temptation to distrust God in that scenario. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced 
that God was able to do what he promised. I don't want to live a half-hearted kind of faith, you know? I don't want to live, yeah, I guess God could do that if he wanted to. I guess God could use me to love the people in my life. I guess God wants me to be free from this sin or that sin. I guess God wants me to do this. I'm fully convinced that the Spirit in us is more than enough to accomplish the will of God in us and through us. And before we close up shop, I want to note one thing in this last section about how... um, Paul talks about the scriptures. Look in verse six or verse uh, eight. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing, the God, the author of the Bible is divine, right? Foreseeing what would happen in the fullness of time. The scripture foreseeing that. Whenever he's preach, whenever God's speaking to Abraham, really he's preaching the gospel to Abraham. The scripture preached the gospel thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years before the Christ event took place. This will be a refresher for many of you, but for many of you, we need to understand this morning that the gospel doesn't exist as like a, a chapter of the Bible. Right, it's not like all these Old Testament facts, like, you know, you don't go to Genesis and say, okay, what I want to know right now is how old the world is. So, I'm going to go to Genesis, and the whole purpose of Genesis is to show me how old the world is. No, that's not the purpose of Genesis. Can Genesis lead us to know how old the world is? Yeah, sure. Do do godly people disagree about how old the world is? Yeah, sure. But you don't just go say, oh, I I need a case study on morality. Let me open up to an Old Testament story. Oh, I need, a, I need a random story about conquering kings. Let me open up to this story. The Bible isn't just this random collection of stories that don't mean anything. The Bible is the story of God. And the thread of redemption runs its way through the entire Bible. And Paul is saying that whenever Abraham was called by God, God was preaching the gospel to Abraham, that God had in mind not just the formation of the Jewish people to live in a promised land, but God had in mind the redemption and restoration of humanity through the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't just one little chapter in the Bible. The gospel is the theological heart of the Bible, which is a collection of writings written over thousands of years by dozens of people that are all going somewhere. Every page of the Old Testament, from the very beginning through the ups and downs of the human experience, through the waywardness of God's people, every page is weaving us closer and closer to Golgotha, the hill which Christ would ascend with his cross. The Old Testament canon, the writings of the apostles, these were divinely inspired by God. What we have when we open our Bibles is the story of God. So when we read, Paul can say to us, just like he said to the Galatians, was it not before your eyes that Christ was portrayed as crucified? Worship team, if you would come on up. Though written across thousands of years by dozens of people, the unifying thread of redemption weaves its way through every page. 
Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City, and uh, he is extremely, extremely gifted, and he's been helpful to the church today in um, this sort of Christ-centered hermeneutic, where we'd argue something like this, that Jesus is the true and better Abraham who left his home in glory and came to earth, right? Jesus is the one through whom all blessing would come to the world. Now, there's one passage of Scripture um, Go ahead and flip over there. We'll, like, we'll use our Bibles today. And we'll actually turn in them and stuff. Luke 24 um, is the resurrection of Christ. And there's a, a, a story that I love to preach um, in there. Uh, Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. And he is uh, about to join a guy named Cleopas and, and his buddy on this seven-mile walk um, to Emmaus, a little village outside of Jerusalem. And uh, they're walking together and they're chatting about all that had taken place. And um, it's so funny. It's, it's like comical when you read the text because Jesus literally walks up beside him and they're like talking. He's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, um, have you been under a rock? You know, like Jesus, right? This guy, he, it's all anyone's talking about, you know? He's like, what things, you know? What, what are you talking about? And so they, they begin to tell him, you know, uh, this guy came. We thought he was the one. You know, we thought he was this great prophet. We thought he was the one who would deliver us from our sins. Verse 21, we had hoped. <laughs> we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, now it's the third day since all this has happened. Some of our women of our company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe the Old Testament. Slow of heart to believe these prophets you've read your whole life. Was it not necessary that the Messiah, the chosen one that you'd hoped he was, was it not necessary that he would die and suffer everything that's happened and then enter into glory? Verse 27, this is the greatest seminary you could ever have. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Imagine that seven-mile walk with Jesus. They don't know he's Jesus. They, 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 their eyes have been covered. They, can't, they don't mean they can see him, but they don't know he's Jesus. At the end of the trip, they'll find out. But imagine walking those seven miles. I mean, it takes me like days to walk seven miles. And so we're walking seven miles, and, and Jesus is just saying, guys, you're missing the point that what happened to this Jesus is exactly what was supposed to happen to this Jesus. It was exactly what the scriptures had preached would happen to these, this Jesus. What happened in this Jesus was necessary for him to be the chosen one. It was 100% going to happen. So let me start with that which tradition ascribes to Moses. 
Let me start in the very beginning. And through Moses and through all the prophets, the majors and the minors, let me tell you everything Jesus says that's pointing to me. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So I, I, I say I would love to have that experience, right? Like drop out of seminary and walk seven miles with Jesus and then call it a day, you know? But do my actions reflect that I would want that experience more than anything else? Because I want to make a proposition to all of us this morning. That what we have here is the inspired word of God. And when we're in Christ, what we have in us is the Holy Spirit of God. And what we have around us, well, Paul refers to that as the body of Christ. Yeah. Church, I, I think God's given us all we need to live a life of godliness. I think God's given us all we need to know him deeply and intimately and to be near his heart for those around us. Church, I think that all we need is all we have and all we have is all we need for this battle with an enemy who wants to bewitch us just as he wanted to bewitch the Galatians. And just as Paul reminded the Galatians, they are sons and daughters of Abraham. So I remind us this morning that though broken we may be, though unimpressive we certainly are, we of faith are in the line of Abraham. I hope knowing all that God has given you, I hope knowing his presence in you, I hope that emboldens you. I hope we leave tougher, stronger, and more equipped for battle with the evil one. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is powerful. Your word is alive. Lord, our minds are blown when we begin to see the Bible as one storyline from creation to fall to redemption, and one day to restoration. And Lord, we, um, we can forget just how glorious this story is. We can forget that you have called us to play a role in the greatest story ever told. So Lord, I just ask for me and for our church, for this family of faith that, that we're called to love and shepherd and steward. Lord, I just, I just pray that you'll take our eyes and you'll get them off ourselves and you'll raise them to you and that you'll remind us that there's a story bigger than our story and that our story, the story of my life, it only begins to find eternal meaning when I, when I think about it in the context of your great story. Lord, you're redeeming all things even now. And one day you will return and restore all things. And they will be better for having gone through what we've gone through. So Spirit, we believe that you're with us. We repent for neglecting your presence so often. Fill us. 
for the day. Fill us for the week. Fill us for the ministry you've called us to. Free us from ourselves and allow us to live with reckless abandon for Christ and kingdom. It's in his name we pray. Amen.